0: Well, this morning we come to Hebrews chapter 9. This morning I want to cover verses 1 through 14. Um, There's a lot in here. I'm going to focus really more on verses 1 to 10. But I don't think I can adequately cover 1 to 10 without also referring to 11 through 14. My hope is, Lord willing, uh, next week to come back and look at verses 11 to 14 in more detail and, and kind of flesh those out a little bit better, but 9, 1 through 14 as a unit this morning, let me read that for us, and as always, this is the very word of our living God, Hebrews 9, 1 through 14. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So ends the reading of God's holy and infallible and inerrant word. May he bless us as we come before it this morning. Let me pray for us as we do. Father in heaven, as always, we ask that you would be with us and bless us now as we come before your word, that you would speak to us. And in sending your word out among us that you would fulfill your very own promise, that when it goes out, it does not return to you void or empty, but instead it accomplishes everything for which you have purposed it and is successful in everything for which you have sent it. For us, we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us to open our eyes and ears to see and hear the things that you would have us learn from your word today. And in so doing, make your word a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths so that we can walk according to what it teaches us. As always, Father, we lay these things before you, in and through Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Well, it's been a few weeks since we've been in Hebrews together, so let me recap a little bit of of where we've been. Back in chapter 7, Jesus is compared to Melchizedek, that mysterious figure from Genesis, the priest king of Jerusalem or Salem, and Jesus is shown to be greater than him, greater than the Old Testament priests, bringing true righteousness, true peace, offering a better sacrifice himself, uh, once for all time. And then the author moves on in chapter 8 to talk about that high priest, Jesus, who is now seated in heaven at the right hand of God, the true tent set up by the Lord. So the earthly tent is just a copy, it's just a model, it's just a pattern of that reality in heaven. And there Jesus has a better ministry, in that better tent, that true dwelling place of God, ministering there a better covenant, the one that was promised by Jeremiah. Now the law is written internally on our hearts in fulfillment of the promise of Jeremiah. (coughs) Internally rather than externally on stone, And now the law is effective in the lives of God's people. And that is in contrast, of course, to the external law, which the author calls weak and useless in making God's people perfect. So the author in chapter 9 is going to continue to flesh out this idea, this this new reality in Christ. And in doing so, he takes us inside that tent, that tabernacle. (coughs) And I think by implication, the temple also. And he talks about the structure of that tent. He's not talking about the outer courtyard or anything else. But as the priests go into the tent, what is there? And he brings this up to teach us something about, of all things, you might have caught it there in verse 9. This is symbolic for the present age. So I want to begin this morning by by looking at two ideas to give us some context. The ideas of, of time this age, the age to come, but also the idea of a a space, a layout, an architecture of a holy, sacred space, and then move on to how the author uses the temple as an object lesson for us to teach us some important things, and then Jesus' role in making those things real and possible for us. So let's talk about these (coughs) concepts of time and place that the author is using I took an elective class in seminary specifically about Old Testament worship. worship. And one of the cool things about it was the teacher pointed out how you you see this regular repeated pattern in the Old Testament of sacred things. Sacred um, people, sacred objects, God, of course, who is holy in himself, but also sacred times, sacred places, the sacred times we see in the regular celebration of the Sabbaths, or the regular celebration of the feasts, um, or the years of Jubilee, sacred times set aside (coughs) by God. But also sacred places, really focused on and centered in one place, the tabernacle, or eventually the temple. But there were other unique sacred spaces that we see in the Old Testament. Um, Eden itself. The ark that Noah and his family took refuge in. Uh, The burning bush was a sacred spot. And um, even Mount Sinai, as God gave the law. Sacred times, sacred spaces. And the author is kind of drawing on these here in chapter 9. I want to talk about time first. And the thing that strikes me about this passage, the thing that it reminded me of was Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Uh, in verse 11, the beginning of Ecclesiastes, you might remember, has that poetic section to everything. There is a time and purpose under heaven uh, that was made into a wonderful little song. But it says in verse 11 of chapter 3, <coughs> God has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. Think about that little phrase in the middle. God has put eternity into our hearts. Last time we read during the service some sections from the Westminster Confession of Faith about when the, that God originally created man with his law on his heart. This was lost in the fall. Uh, we are corrupted. We desire only to, to do evil. And what God does in the New Covenant, of course, is restore his law written on our heart. There's something about time as well that's similar. In the garden there was this peace with God, this unity with God, um, and the opportunity if, if the right tree was eaten, as we've talked about on in our teaching time, the tree of life, to have life eternal with God. <coughs> this sense of the ongoing presence with God and, and the task to take care of his creation, and to be fruitful and multiply, this sense of the ongoing blessed relationship with God that's lost in the fall. And so this yearning for that is in us. We want to go back. Or, in this case, we want to go forward. We want to leave behind what we have now. We yearn for eternity. And I think that yearning expresses itself in some different ways, just a few to suggest Here this morning, Ecclesiastes points out one of them to us. We want to understand God. What is God doing from beginning to end? (laughs) Well, we can't do that. Um, We don't know the mind of God, and we only know what he reveals to us. Now, there is a remedy for this in Ecclesiastes, (coughs) right there in that same chapter. He says, there's nothing better to do than be joyful, to do good as long as we live, eating and drinking and taking pleasure in our toil, our work, because this is a gift from God to us. In other words, yes, you yearn for eternity, but God has given you something now. Be content with what you have now. There's another way I think this yearning for eternity expresses itself in us. This is the the desire that we often see, we talk about it amongst ourselves, to leave some kind of an impact after we're gone from this life. We talk about that in different ways. Doing something that has lasting value or impact on the world. Something for our children, something for our grandchildren. Maybe a business that we leave behind that we're proud of. Or, or a church that is healthy and strong that we pass on to future generations. <clears throat> we want to have some confidence, some assurance that we're leaving behind something worthwhile for others that come after us. And hopefully so that they'll remember us. We want to be remembered. And it's in that remembering that we kind of have this sense of having a taste of eternity. I will be remembered after I'm gone. I've left something behind of value. And then compare that to the eternity that God promises to us. Which would you rather have? And which is more worth yearning for? Another way we see this yearning for eternity is is in the very common desire uh, just for a better world in general, for the future to be better than what it is now, to leave the world a better place than when I came into it. When I was a young boy, there was a song from the musical Hair that became a hit on the radio. This is the dawning of the age of Aquarius, a song that talked about harmony. Understanding, peace, joy, harmony and understanding, sympathy and trust abounding, no more falsehoods or derisions, golden living dreams of visions, mystical crystal revelations, the mind's true revelation. This is the dawning of the age of Aquarius. We yearn for this. <coughs> we yearn for it. We create utopias. We create better worlds when we We work hard for them, we try to create them, we try to make them come into existence so that we make the world a better place. Eternity really is on our hearts. We yearn for eternity, for a new and better age. One of the ways this is expressed most strongly in America is in the New Age movement. That's what they're talking about, a new age. (laughs) It's an old religion dressed up in new clothing. But it's a longing in the hearts of mankind. I'd commend to you Peter Jones, uh, the professor, former professor then at Westminster, and his um, Truth Exchange website that talks very well and has some very great insights into this phenomenon in our in our day and age. Something better. Again, I would remind ourselves what the world is looking for, what they crave, what they seek. We have the answers for them, if we are just willing and ready to share that with them. So here they strive for a new age, something better, something <coughs> greater than what we have now, and if you look closely at what they, what they prescribe to get there, it's really just more work, 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 meditate, set up these crystals, pay it forward, do some good deed, and Someone who the, the person you did the good deed for will do it for someone else. You, there's an I can't remember the company, but there's a company that advertises on television, and the advertisement is to show how great and charitable and wonderful they are as a company. And it's a co- it's a commercial that you know it's, it starts in the early part of the day. Someone's out jogging, and the paperboy threw the the old lady's paper in the bushes, and so he does a good deed and retrieves it for her and takes it to her. And then the old lady goes out shopping and she does something nice for somebody. And the person that she does nice for somebody holds the door open or, you know, whatever it might be. And this is balderdash. Because you and I both know that just because I do a good deed doesn't mean that crotchety old lady is going to do a good deed for someone else. She might be selfish. But this is, this is the desire, the yearning for something better. The yearning for Eternity—it's a context. This is, think about these things as we come a little closer to the text this morning. The other idea is space, the architecture, the layout, <coughs> and he presents this to us in the Old Testament tabernacle. Spends five verses, verses one through five of, of chapter nine, describing the the two sections within the tabernacle: the holy place with the table for the, the showbread with the menorah, the lampstand, with the altar of incense, and then the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant is. Two sections where the priests serve God. The first where the priests go in daily. They've got to keep those <coughs> that menorah lit. They've got to keep the incense burning. Once a week they have to change out the bread. But then also that inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, where the high priest goes in once a year to offer the blood of an animal sacrifice for the sins of the people to make atonement for their sins. <coughs> One little technical thing I want to cover quickly that some opponents of, of our faith would point out as an as a error in Scripture. The author in verse 4 talks about the most holy place having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant. Um, we know from other descriptions the altar of incense was in the holy place, not the most holy place. It was right next to the curtain that divided the two places from one another. And I have not heard of a very satisfying explanation of this. Um, but let me share with you a, an illustration that might help. Um, think of your car parked in your driveway. It's your possession. It's part of your Household goods, if you are, it's not in your house, but it's part of your household possessions. I think that's how the author is referring to the, the, um, the altar of incense, and it kind of echoes what we read from First Kings six verses twenty to twenty-two. Go back and look at how Solomon's temple is described, and the altar of incense. It's implied is associated with the most holy place. So even though it's located outside. In a sense, it belongs to the most holy place. And part of the reason for that is when the priest goes in, he has to go in with the blood, but also with that incense that fills that chamber, the most holy place. It's not a great parallel, but maybe it'll help understand what's going on here. Anyway, the author tells us that the layout, these two sections of the tabernacle, is important, that it's a lesson to us from the Holy Spirit. I'm going to talk a little about about this idea of architecture or, or the layout of a building in general before we get to that object le- lesson. I love architecture. I love looking at buildings. I look at the different. Love looking at different designs and different ways things are done. Um, architects. I don't know if you know this, but they love to debate two things: form versus function. Form is the artistry, the beauty of the building. Function is How is it used? (laughs) If you focus on function, well, the argument goes you're going to end up with an ugly, boring building. If you focus on beauty, you're going to have a beautiful building, but you can't use it for anything. And so there's this tension between beauty and and form. Um, Something that's lifeless, but useful, versus something that's beautiful, but not very useful at all. There's something similar with places of worship. How much beauty do we have versus how much functionality for the purpose of worship and more than that when does beauty become idolatry Um, you heard the reading from scripture of the the beauty of the temple Um, when does beauty become idolatry when does statues and paintings and carvings and artwork maybe even the magnificence of the building itself these grand cathedrals that we see in in cities in europe Um, When do they become idols and objects of worship? Um, But on the other hand, can a a place of worship really be functional without some beauty that communicates the glory and majesty of God? Um, Something the Reformers dealt with. But even more than that, is there something about the way we set ourselves up um, that's designed to teach us and to help us in our worship by its very design and setup, Think about government buildings. It's no accident that the legislature meets in a grand, magnificent edifice, or that the Supreme Court has this temple-like building. It's communicating something, power, authority, permanence. Structure communicates something to us. Well, what did the reformers do? They They saw the opulence of the medieval cathedrals. They saw the idolatry that took place in them and for them. Towns and cities were proud of their cathedrals. Look at what we built. Look at our magnificent house for God. It's almost as if they worshipped the building as much as the God who supposedly lived there. The reformers saw this and and sought to make a change, and they got rid of statues and paintings and excessive artwork and other things that might lead people into idolatry they didn't leave out meaning or teaching completely. A lot of what the medieval cathedrals supposedly were meant to do was teach the people through images and, and pictures, people who were illiterate and couldn't read. Um, the reformers said, let's teach them to read. <laughs> That's better. They can read for themselves. But is there? A, do we take out all symbolic meaning completely? And they said no. Um, we set up our churches a certain way. I, I don't think I've talked about this with you before. Or if I have, it's been a long time, and I apologize. But there's a reason that the pulpit with the Bible on it is front and center in our worship spaces. It didn't used to be that way. It was off to one side. The Reformers put the Bible, they put the pulpit front and center. Why? Because the Word is front and center. God's Word, Christ, the embodiment of that Word is front and center. The the preacher is behind the pulpit. Why? To submit to the Word. I'm as much submitting to this Word as anybody else. The Word is between us as I speak the Word on God's behalf to you, which is a terrifying thing to to be called to do. The Lord's Supper is, is set before us on a table. It's not an altar. We don't have altars in Protestant churches. We don't sacrifice anything. We have a table with a meal on it. And we gather together like a family around that table to celebrate a meal together, to have a feast together. These are the kinds of images that the Reformers wanted to impart to us in the way that we gather together as God's people. We come around a table and we eat the meal that Christ has given to us together. Word and sacrament are right at the very heart of what we do, the focus of attention. There's powerful symbolism there. It doesn't matter if you meet in a school, in someone's house, in a commercial building like we do, or you have your own church that you built and own, in, in, in pro, especially in the Reformed and, and uh, Presbyterian tradition. This is a very common uh, layout, and it's not by accident. It's meant to teach us something and to keep us humble before God's Word. So there is something to be said for architecture and the way things are set up that communicate Something to us and hopefully something powerful and useful. Well, the author turns us to the tent. He describes it in verses 1 to (coughs) 5 and lays it before us as an object lesson for us. Some things we can note. Um, Already talked about the the description in verses 1 to 5. He does say at the end of verse 5 of these things we cannot now speak in detail. What does that imply? There's more that could be said. (laughs) There's something about these things in the Old Testament tabernacle and temple that we can learn from, things that arguably point us to Christ and his work, but he doesn't have time for that now. He's got another lesson that he wants to get to. There's also an interesting phrase in verse 1, the way this passage begins. Now, even the first commandment had regulations for worship. Now, if I say, sitting around the table, eating dinner with my family, if I say to one of my kids who's not wanting to eat his or her dinner, if I say to them, even I have to eat what's on my plate, what am I saying to them? You've got to eat what's on your plate, too. <laughs> even I have to do this. So I think there's a sense here when the author says, even the first covenant had regulations for worship, what he's implying is, we have regulations for worship, too. We don't throw away all regulations and and stipulations and and, uh, God's instructions for worship. They exist for us as well. Again, he doesn't have time to go into that here in this part of the letter, but we should keep that in the back of our minds. We don't just worship haphazardly. We don't just worship according to our own whims or ideas. God has given us regulations, and we try to follow those. And to the best of our ability, we try to do that here at Mission Presbyterian. So, he's reminded us of the layout of the tent. Again, an emphasis on the tent, the tabernacle, because he's talking about Mosaic law and Mosaic practice. But I don't think we can exclude the temple, because that's the kind of culmination of what the tabernacle is pointing to. Then he reminds us of what goes on in verses 6 and 7. The priests are going in and doing their various tasks. Keeping the lampstand lit... Keep the incense burning, replacing the 12 loaves, as I mentioned, the high priest going once a year to make the sacrifice. He's already told us in prior sections of this letter that that regular once-a-year sacrifice is completely inadequate to deal with sin. And it's repetition, and the priests who die show how inadequate it is. But all of 1 to (laughs) 7 sets up verses 8 and 9. This is the heart of what he's building to. An interesting claim, this structure, this practice, by this structure and by this practice, the Holy Spirit himself, he says, is indicating to us that the way to the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing. As long as that first section of the temple, the holy place, With the altar, with the menorah, with the table, with the bread on it, as long as it's still standing, as long as there's still that curtain dividing the first place from the second place, the way to holiness is closed. We can't get in. Think about that. That's a little frustrating. (laughs) We can't get in until it's gone. And then he says in verse 9 that this is symbolic for the present age. The Holy Spirit is giving us a physical kind of parable, a physical lesson. As long as the temple stands, as long as it has standing is another way to read this, the way into God's presence is shut. We cannot get to God. Our consciences cannot be purified. We cannot be right with God. We cannot be acceptable to Him. Our hearts will not be changed as worshipers of God. That worship, with its regulations, again back to verse 1, is inadequate. The laws that govern it are weak and useless. Remember chapter 7, verse 18. They're weak and useless to make us into the kind of people that are acceptable to God, holy and able to go into His presence. All we're left with is external food and drink and washings things, he says, that are imposed until the time of reformation or correction comes in verse 10. Gifts and sacrifices are offered in verse 9 that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. As long as that old system stands, we cannot get to God. That's not just daunting, it's a little bit terrifying. we're stuck in this present age. That eternity that we yearn for cannot be realized, as long as that old system remains in place. Our desire for eternity and our desire to be with God is thwarted. And so we resort to these other things. We we try to supplant God. We try to know His mind. We try to be gods ourselves and leave a mark that others will remember. Or we try to make the world a better place and try to create the utopia he's promised through our own efforts and means. We're either trying to get to God or trying to be God. Our yearning for eternity drives us. But the author is saying that the lesson to us from the tabernacle, from the temple, and all the practice and regulations that went with it, is that as long as those things are still in place, until the new covenant that was promised comes, God is out of reach. We can't access or get access to him. Side note, so why be obsessed with the temple? (laughs) And the temple coming back in a millennium. It's a step back into an age that we don't want to go to. Why go back to that? It's crazy. The age to come cannot be realized until someone breaks through that curtain goes in there for us and prepares the way so that we can go in after him. Someone who can break down this system of worship with its regulations and structure that cannot perfect our consciences, that cannot make us holy, that cannot change our hearts. Someone has to go in there for us and change things. That's the lesson the Holy Spirit is giving us in the structure of the temple itself and in our yearning for Eternity. Where does that lead us? It leads us to verses 11 to 14. It's why I can't just concentrate on verses 1 to 10. I can't leave you down. There's got to be a solution. And the solution, as the old song says, Jesus is the answer. And this is what the author's been pointing us to for a long time. He's, he hasn't used Jesus' name since chapter 6, verse 20. There's a verse in chapter 8 that's often translated Christ, but really they're translating the word he So we know what the pronoun is referring to. For the first time in verse 11, he uses the name of of Christ again. Christ is the solution. This son that the author has been talking about, this one who is the priest and king after Melchizedek, this mediator of the new promised better covenant, this is Jesus Christ. And as he said back in chapter 6, verse 20, he went behind that curtain, As a forerunner for us, to offer himself by his own blood. Again, I want to look at this in more detail next week as we dig deeper into verses 11 to 14. But 1 to 10 only makes sense in the context of 11 to 14 because there's a problem, and 11 to 14 is the solution. (coughs) As long as that old covenant system and architecture was in place, The present age remains, and the age to come cannot come, cannot arrive. Access to God is shut. But Jesus in his death and resurrection, as we're going to see next week, Lord willing, going into the true presence of God, sitting down at his right hand at the throne of majesty, offering his own blood to cover our sins, (coughs) offering himself as the solution and his own righteousness as a solution to purify our consciences, giving us new hearts that are are hearts of flesh instead of hearts of stone, with God's law written upon them, purifies us, as the author says in verse 14, so that we may serve the living God. And it's a living God that we serve. And in serving the living God, we become truly alive. And now the temple is a temple of life, when really in the past it was a temple of death. Jesus died so that we might have a life. Leads us into the presence of God. Remember that word forerunner has the connotations both of someone who shows the way for a crowd coming behind him but also gets there and makes the announcement I got people coming after me. And that's who they are. See that one there? That's mine. See that one there? I prepared the way for her. Jesus goes behind the curtain. And what do we see in Luke? And it's in Matthew and Mark as well. The curtain is torn in two. God's presence is now open to all who will enter following our forerunner, Jesus Christ. Looking to Him in repentance and faith. You want eternity? You want lasting significance and meaning? Come to Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. No one has life, and no one can grasp eternity except through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Is your heart set on eternity? It's Kind of a silly question, because I know it is. Yours is, and mine is, too. Everyone's heart is, in some way, shape, or form, Set on eternity. God made things that way as we saw in Ecclesiastes. And maybe you've wanted a name or a work or something that will last and be remembered. Maybe you hope for a legacy that you can pass on to your children and grandchildren or to the community and your friends in general. Maybe you're looking for a new age of harmony and peace and understanding. But without Jesus as Savior Going into that curtain, ripping it apart, and making the holy presence of God available, it's impossible. The only way into the presence of God himself, the only way into eternity, and any sort of meaning and and any sort of substance and any sort of peace and understanding and harmony in life, is through Jesus Christ, and the way is open and wide open to those who repent and believe. What's the invitation? Come on in. The holy place is open. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we are thankful that You, our holy, perfect, glorious, majestic God, has opened the way for us through Your Son, Jesus Christ. May we always Trust in and follow Him. Help us to do so. We struggle with this day after day after day. Our sins frustrate us. Our inattentiveness, our weakness, the, the demands and cares and concerns of life seem to block and rise up and get in our way. Help us to continue to rest in the work of Jesus. Know that He has done it for us and that in Him and through Him and because of Him and by Him we even now have a taste of that age to come, inaugurated when Christ was here, and we look forward to its consummation consummation when he returns. And Lord, may that day come quickly, and in the meantime, may many, many enter in, and may you use us to bring them in uh, through our witness and through uh, our service to them as well. As always, we ask this in the name of Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.